name, Jesus. Amen. If you would this evening turn to 2 Kings, we'll be looking at chapter 13. Looks like I didn't change that scripture passage. It's actually 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. 2 Kings 13. Many of you have heard of the hymn, Faith of Our Fathers. It's a glorious hymn, wonderful hymn for the church. It speaks of the sacrifice, the commitment the true faith of those who are in Jesus Christ. But for those outside the church, or for those without that true faith, it's rather meaningless. For many, the faith of your fathers means the religion of such things like football, allegiance to a particular political party, or adherence to a certain philosophy or set of rules. You see, we all practice some sort of religion. It's either the religion of idolatry or the religion of the true God. If only those who knew about the true God would rise to the occasion and follow him. Unfortunately, Jehoahaz is the king of Israel, and if you read through the history of the kings of Israel, you know that not one rises to the occasion. Jehoahaz is no different. Very short, very nondescript section of scripture, yet it's God's word that we can learn from. Follow along as I read just nine verses from 2 Kings 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 17 years. He did what was right, what was evil. I wanted to say he did what was right, he didn't. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left in Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash, his son, reigned in his place. So all the further we're going to read this evening, let's bow briefly in prayer. Lord, by your grace, may these words fall upon ears that hear and hearts that understand your word by the power of your spirit. Convict us of sin, remind us of your grace, and show us the way of salvation, even in this passage, we pray. And Lord, let all the things spoken here, done here, thought here, be pleasing in your sight and consistent with your word or else pass away, never to be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You've heard the phrase, we've always done it that way. Call it a routine, a comfort zone, or whatever you want. There are some things in which we get into a familiar way of doing things. We all have it. There's even ritual here at our church. We have the same time for worship every Sunday, 9.30 and 6 o'clock. We have a similar order of worship, even to the point that it might get boring after a while. There are expectations for seating arrangements. I can probably guess where most of you are likely to sit, particularly in the morning. The lighting, we have expectations for. The elements of worship, it goes on and on. Even the way we dress. Routine and familiarity themselves are neither good nor evil. But what happens if the routine and the habits are themselves evil? Now, King Jehu, the father of Jehoahaz, had had a great opportunity to return Israel to the proper worship of the Lord. In fact, as you know, if you've read through 2 Kings, he did a wonderful, fantastic thing in Israel. Not only had he seen the destruction of the evil and wicked house of Ahab and the line of Omri, but he had destroyed Baal worship for good from the time that Jehu was king until the time that they were defeated by the Assyrians. Baal's not mentioned in the northern kingdom of Israel again. This was something even Judah didn't do. Even though they had good kings, they worshiped props up in Judah every once in a while after King Jehu in the north. But instead of returning them to the proper worship of the Lord, he reinstituted the cult of the golden calves. And his son, Jehoahaz, followed in the status quo that his father and his forefathers had set. This is the situation. Jehoahaz becomes king. He is now the king of Israel. He is the son of Jehu. And he is entrenched in the status quo. In fact, there is now a new political status quo. Back in chapter 10, verse 30, when God had called Jehu to come and get rid of the house of Ahab, he had promised Jehu because of the good job he did in getting rid of the royal line of Ahab, because of all that he had done to fulfill that prophecy God had told him in chapter 10, verse 30, he said, now you will have your sons on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Jehoahaz is the first of four in the line of Jehu who will serve in this matter. So it's now a new political status quo. Now it's no longer, of course, in the northern kingdom, the line of David. Now it's the line of Jehu. The problem is, the formula here describes that this king was not good. He was evil. You think here are the opportunities for these kings because of what's taken place. Now there's no longer Baal worship in the land. Now they've had an opportunity to turn things around in the land. But his father Jehu again instituted the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and Jehoahaz followed the old religious status quo. Jeroboam, way back, remember your history here, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when there was a united kingdom of Israel and Judah, <coughs> Rehoboam was harsh to the people and at God's, 
God's sovereign work, he decided to split the kingdom into two and let Rehoboam and the line of David have the southern kingdom of Judah with two tribes. And the other ten tribes in the north he gave to this man, the other Boam, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And Jeroboam was given this kingdom against he had, again. He had this great opportunity to, to establish in Israel a place where God was worshipped, that even though it was a different nation now, they could go down to Jerusalem and worship the true God together. But instead, Jeroboam said this to himself, Behold, my people, if they were to go down to Jerusalem to worship, I'll lose them. And so he instituted in Dan and in Bethel, golden calves. And he said to the people of Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And they began to worship these golden calves. These are the sins of his forefather, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. In fact, you hear this word Jeroboam throughout all of 2 Kings until the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed. This particular sin is a nagging sin that becomes the status quo of religion in the north. And of course it has become the sin also of his father Jehu. Again, here's Jehu ridding the land of Baal worship, that horrible horrible God of the Philistines that they had invited in, the God not only of the Philistines, but also Tyre and Sidon and the surrounding territory, the God that Jezebel brought down and they instituted right there in Samaria in the most public place possible. And the people have been worshiping Baal and Jehu in his earnestness and in his devotion to the Lord's plan to wipe out all of the line of Ahab also wiped out the entire cult of Baal in Israel. And what an opportunity for him now to institute once again the true worship of the Lord. But instead he did this. He returned to the status quo of the northern kingdom, the worship of these golden calves in Dan and Bethel. And here's the response of the Lord to this. In fact, we know he's entrenched by them. Look at the last little phrase of verse 2. He did not depart from them. In other words, he continued in them. He was entrenched in them. And the response of the Lord to the status quo cult of these golden calves is this anger. The wrath or anger of God upon all of Israel. God never once enjoyed the fact that he the true God who really did bring the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt was now told to be found in golden calves that had nothing to do with the true God of Israel. His anger arose. And here's what he did. He gave them continually into the hand of Hazel, came Syria, into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel. Now, if you've read this section of scripture, you see Syria popping up again and again. In the Hebrew, it's the word Aram. Here is Aram, or Syria, now who is their constant enemy, and the, the one that's a nagging enemy uh, throughout all of these decades of the kingdom of Israel. The problem is this. How can God then use Syria, this nation outside them, a cruel nation like the other nations around them. This is God's method sometimes, isn't it? To use the unjust to punish unjust Israel. And so Hazel had his way. 
And then when Haziel was no longer the commander of the army, his son Ben-Hadad also had his way. And they continually had the upper hand over Israel. So in this response of the Lord to the status quo cult was wrath upon Israel, the use of the unjust to bring punishment upon the unjust nation of Israel, and the use, of course, geopolitically of the nation of Syria during this era. Now, how in the world does this apply to us? Well, it's because of this. We have a tendency to follow the ways of our fathers. To have a tendency to follow the ways of the forefathers and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers of those in our life. I know that there are many people in this country who are going to vote a certain way in the upcoming election because that's how their family has always voted. We used to call that up in Tennessee when I was up there. There were those who would call uh, Democrats who voted this way the dead dog Democrats. There was a dead dog on the ballot. They were going to vote for him because he was a Democrat. And there were those on the Democrat side who said that there were those in the Republican Party that do the same thing. No matter what you put on that ballot, if it has an R by the name, they're going to vote for it. Now, of course, there are ramifications of these votes because the political parties have changed their morals. The political parties have changed what they believe to be true. And now they're promoting not only a different economic theory or a different political theory or a different idea of either big government or small government. Now they're promoting evil things. Sometimes both parties are promoting wickedness and to vote for these things just because they have a certain name after their, or political party after their name, is not a good habit. But that's just one area. All of us are imbibed into the world in which we have been embedded since we are children. Our families have certain traditions, certain ideas, certain things we pay attention to, certain habits, certain ways we get together, certain ways we treat one another. And all of those things become a status quo. Some of those things become even an idolatrous religion. Sometimes, because of our background and the way we were brought up, there are certain things in life that become the most important thing, even more important than church and than God himself. In fact, if I were to state one thing that I think our American culture does is we worship at the cult of nice. It's a great pastor, one that I heard speak one time saying that there are, this is the 11th commandment in America, thou shalt be nice. And I have to say it's so tempting to always try and satisfy everybody else as much as you can rather than to tell them the truth. Along with affluence, lack of morality, etc., the cult of nice just won't cut it when there's life and death and eternity at stake. We're entrenched in the status quo. We don't want to call people sinners. We don't want to call some habits that we have sin. We don't want to use those words that everybody else says are terrible. We want to go back to the calves of our society and worship them. 
But you know, there's kind of a surprising twist to this story just in a couple of verses here. Here's this king. He's like all the other kings in Israel. He's, he's in, encouraging the people to worship the golden calves that Jeroboam has set up many years ago now. They're in the status quo here. The wrath of God has come. Again, this is not unusual because God does this to Israel because of their wickedness and their idolatry. But then we get to verse 4 and something unusual happens. Here is this calf worshiper, and he cries out to God. Jehovah has sought the favor of the Lord, and that's an unusual thing. Remember, who's his God? His God are these golden calves in Dan and Bethel. His God is this religion that, that is built around uh, some, some sort of religion that, that might have some ideas of who God is or what his law is, but rather than encourage people to worship the true God down in Jerusalem at the temple in the ways that God has prescribed, Jeroboam not only set up these idols, he set up new holidays for this religion. He set up feasts, and he set up a new priest system that weren't Levites. It was an entire religious system that he had set up. We do that, too. You know, we have a religious system in our country. For some people, it's the entire religious system of the so-called woke culture and the ways in which you can do right or wrong and the methods in which you do these things in your life prescribe the religious system that they're in. They even talk about redemption, although in their method of religion there might not be any redemption. But they talk about redemption and they talk about sins and they talk about good and bad things. Here it is. In the midst of this, he calls out to the Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized in your Bible, for the name of Yahweh, the true God of Israel. Here's this calf worshiper calling out to God. Now, if we turn to Proverbs 28.9, we read these words. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Scripture says that. If you're someone who has turned away from the Lord, you've turned away from hearing the law, even your prayer is an abomination. God has every right then to say, because of this abomination, I will not pay attention. But probably the shocking response to this calf worshiper is this. The Lord listened to Jehoahaz. God's grace so amazing, so powerful. Now we can argue, I think, that maybe the Lord wasn't really listening to Jehoahaz, the person, for his great faith or for his great morality or anything like that. Jehoahaz didn't have those things. He wasn't respecting the person. It tells us this. It says the Lord listened to him because he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. He's like a father seeing the child that has gone prodigal. He sees them in their sin and their muck and all of the consequences of that sin. He sees all of the oppression of the Syrians and he looks at them and he has pity on them. Because God loves his children. The Lord is actually reacting to Israel's oppression. And it's nothing new. 
Perhaps you remember he did this back in Exodus. When he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he said to Moses, he says, I see the oppression of my people. In verse 7 he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. This was before they did good or bad. This was before they said we are going to turn in mass to the Lord during this time. Before all this, God had grace upon them because they were oppressed and he loved them. And so he did this. Kind of an interesting phrase. Therefore, verse 5, the Lord gave Israel a savior. So they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Now, of course, he's not talking here about the Savior, Jesus Christ, who was to come centuries later. He's not talking about this Savior who's going to save them from their sins and from the consequences of their sins into eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he's talking about a temporary Savior who will save them from their political and their real oppression during this day. So who is a savior? Well, there are many options that different scholars have. Some say that it's the Assyrian king, Adad-Nirari III, who about that time neutralized Syria so that it would give relief to Israel. You see, whenever the Assyrians were attacking the Syrians, then the Syrians would leave Israel alone. And so some people think that this savior was actually this pagan king of Assyria who at this time intervened and messed with Syria to the point that they forgot about Israel for a while and Israel had a time of peace. That's one option. Second option is Elisha. Some people think that Elisha the prophet is the savior who was delivered. In fact, just later on uh, in chapter uh, 13 here, it says in verse 14, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And some think that Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, is referring to Elisha as the one who has the military, and military power and might of the kingdom. And of course, here is Elisha. He is the one person in this era of history in which he is a constant thorn in Syria's side. If you remember the history, there were times when he knew exactly what the king of Syria was planning in his bedroom. He was the one who could have uh, people marching to him, and he could call down from God blindness on the army and lead them to the king of Israel. He was an amazing guy. And he was a thorn in the Syrian side. So some people think that this is a reference to Elisha, the savior of the people at this time. Others think it was the subsequent two kings. That actually, when it says here that continually Syria was uh, having the power of Israel in their hands, that it didn't mean until actually after the king of Jehoahaz, after King Jehoahaz's reign, that this time of peace developed. And so some look at this word saving and find out that in verse 17, it uses the word, the root word for save and victory there regarding King Joash. And then in chapter 14, the grandson of Jehoahaz, it uses the word save in that passage and maybe that's referring to these kings together, saving Israel from these times. So what is my theory on who the Savior is? 
I agree with the commentators who go through all this and then say, you know, it really doesn't matter, does it? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to God. He's revealed everything we need to know. For some reason, God didn't find it important to put in our scriptures who exactly this Savior is. But the point is this. There's a surprise here. The surprise is that the Lord provides a Savior to needy Israel. Israel hasn't repented. Israel isn't led by a righteous king. For some reason, this king was inspired perhaps at the leading of the Holy Spirit somehow, perhaps not. But he was leading to call out to someone else for help because his religion wasn't working. And he called to the Lord. And surprise of surprise, the Lord answered. I now have a son in the military. And people have told me this quote many times. There are no atheists in foxholes. The problem is that doesn't make them followers of Jesus, does it? What happens when God answers the prayer of these soldiers? Does this mean that every single soldier under duress when his prayer for escape and rescue is answered by God is going to turn to God? And all of these soldiers now are in churches across our land because now they're no longer atheists, now they're followers of Jesus? I wish that were the case. But the problem is this. God's grace falls on the just and the unjust. His reign is a blessing upon the unjust as well as the just. Even though God's grace comes in surprising ways and sometimes his grace comes in powerful packages. Yet this is the problem. Some of us in this world will be hardened in the status quo. Verse 6 is such a trying verse. It has so much potential, doesn't it? Here's a king who's involved in the cult of his time. These calves in golden, golden calf worship. And here he is doing these things, and God's anger comes upon them in discipline. And of course, discipline is always meant to bring people back to the Lord. Either that or it's, it's just punishment where God won't give a second chance. And here the idea is that, that they have this great opportunity to repent and turn to God. And you hear this phrase, Jehoahaz pleads with the Lord for mercy. And the, the Lord answers. And instead of that man and the entire nation once again returning to the Lord, you hear this word nevertheless. But... They did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. Here's the response to, this, to, to the Lord's amazing deliverance. Their response to the Lord's Savior is this, a refusal to turn aside from this calf Here's the Lord. He's intervened on their behalf. He sent them a Savior. He's done what they asked, even though they don't deserve it. This is real grace here. And yet, how do they respond? They go about doing the same thing. A refusal to turn aside from the calf cult. 
Not only this, but a reminder there, there is a remaining participation in the Asherah cult. In other words, there's pure idolatry going on. And it doesn't stop. And you know, it does not stop for the entire history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Every single king is involved in this terrible calf worship. I thought, thinking about this, of when something good happens and what our response is. A couple years ago, we had a phone call from a social media giant. His name is Mr. Beast. And we were told that he was going to run in the local Myrtle Beach Marathon. But the way he was going to run is he was going to wear these great big humongous shoes while he was running. And he was going to record it. And he called up our church because he said, we've looked at the maps of the course, and it's possible that we might spend the night on your property if it's okay with you. Could we put a tent on your property if we stop there? Now, it turns out he didn't do that. But here's Mr. Beast. He has thousands, millions of followers. I don't know a lot about Mr. Beast. I know I don't understand how someone who just has social media and does really kind of rather benign or stupid things on this social media account can raise so much money. He's a multimillionaire. He does really bizarre things like running in the Myrtle Beach Marathon with huge, humongous shoes. In fact, he got his start by having videos put on social media that had him counting to large numbers, and he would just have himself videoed counting. That was how he got his start. But recent days, he has begun to be a man of philanthropy. In fact, if you know anything about the Mr. Beast Institution, you know that they have done amazing things for others with the wealth that they have inherited. As they've raised all this money through bizarre and strange opportunities, one of the things that he did recently was he paid for the surgeries of the deaf to hear. And guess how the press took it? How dare he do that? How dare he think he's the savior to deaf people? How dare he take this money this way and use it in this way to gain a reputation for himself? They had anger at his efforts to help those in need. But this is what the world does and what it does with sinful hearts. Instead of gratitude for God's mercy, which is essential to the life of the believer, the unbeliever often will respond with anger or will respond with indifference. Our sins and our idolatry are so ingrained in us that it's obvious how repentance requires the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. This evening, talking about habits, I've been in the habit on Sunday nights of either wearing a tie or my suit coat, but not both. So you might wonder, why did he wear both tonight? Well, it's for this. I spilled on my shirt at lunch, and so this tie covers up that spill. This is what we do. This is what we do in our status quo life. We keep doing the same thing over and over again, and even when the spills and the consequences of our sin take place, we just cover them up with the same old things all the time, the same habits, the same ideas and all of those things. But here are the consequences of the religious status quo. 
Here's what it says. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria destroyed them, make them like the dust at threshing. You see, it decimates our power. For Jehoahaz, it was military power. He was a king. This was his, his design as a leader of the nation. Military power, military might. It was decimated because of his staying in the status quo. If he had turned to the Lord, the Lord would have had the power. He would have the power not only of 10,000 foot soldiers. He would have had the power of the Lord behind him. And then there's also a disappointing epitaph. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers. They buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his place. This is a formula. It says this about many of the kings in Israel and Judah. But imagine if it could have said, here was a king, and God showed him grace. He responded with gratitude, and the nation rejoiced. What a different epitaph that would be. Here's the reminder. A religious status quo is dangerous. Now, not the old-time gospel or the good old Bible. They're not dangerous. Not the unchanging God and his eternal word. They're not dangerous. Not faithfulness to come and worship him as has been prescribed and all those things. But a reliance on human inventions is dangerous. It's dangerous to do things because my daddy did it that way. It's dangerous to do things according to the rules and faith of our parents and not necessarily of the scriptures. It's dangerous when they aren't Christ-centered or Bible-based. I hope and pray that if any of you can search the scriptures and see that what I am saying is not true, you will come to me. I hope that you will evaluate the things we do at church and ask those difficult questions, even if it's hard, to come and say, Pastor, I don't know if we do this right. And it might be true. We want God's religious status quo. A status quo that's built on the Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Savior who came not just to temporarily save his people in a time of comfort and peace and prosperity, but a Savior who gives us eternal life that we can come and worship morning and evening every Sunday. Let's bow in prayer. Father, help us not to do things because we've always done things that way, but Lord, help us to do things that please and glorify you. Lord, help us not to react in the ways that our parents react just for the sake that that's who we are or what we've done, but Lord, help us to have true gratitude and to truly want to worship you for, Lord, you have given us a Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us in these areas. It's hard to change. It's hard to see change. But, Lord, let the change of the Holy Spirit, convicting us, changing us, sanctifying us, let that be a wonderful opportunity to see your grace in action.